Amen. I am truly grateful for each and every one of you who are here this morning. And I realize that to some of you, I may be a stranger. I was called to First Christian Church a long time ago, 1985. Um, My first full-time ministerial position was serving here, and I was actually ordained that fall, um, and representatives from this congregation came down to Atlanta to the church where I, or Georgia, to the church where I was ordained. So it is a true privilege for me to be back here um, and preaching this morning. And I do thank you for turning out on this cold day. When I looked up the lectionary texts for this Sunday, I was delighted to discover today's scripture from the book of Jonah. I have a real affinity for this little four-chapter book, and I'm not exactly sure why. It may have to do with how the book is written. Unlike the other Old Testament prophets, Jonah is written in prose, not poetry. So it's easier to follow. The story is crafted with exaggerated, over-the-top details, like a tall tale or a fable. It's a genre that's a lot of fun. The book also ends with a question, forcing the reader to think and draw conclusions. I also have a keen affinity for Jonah himself, the anti-hero of the book. And again, not really sure why. He does just about everything wrong. And at the end of the book, he's furious with God. But somehow I find him endearing. Some of the other Old Testament prophets aren't super excited about their calling. They have qualms, they ask questions. But Jonah's the only one who runs away in the complete opposite direction. And maybe I think if God can use someone as flawed as Jonah, then God can use me with all my shortcomings and failures. Jonah's one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. little tiny book is tucked between Obadiah and Micah, and if it weren't for the fact that he spent three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, or a whale as we were taught in Sunday school, most of us would probably never have heard of him. Most of the Old Testament prophets are telling the people of Israel to return to following the way of God. Jonah is the only prophet sent to the Gentiles, people like us like you and me, who are outside of the covenant that God had with the Hebrews. Our scripture lesson today is from chapter 3, but I'm all about context. I can't just start preaching from the middle of the story. So before we read from chapter 3, I'm going to summarize what has happened in the story so far. Because if you're like me and most people, all you know is about the whale and you don't really know anything else, right? In the first chapter, God calls Jonah and tells him to go to the city of Nineveh, which was an Assyrian city. The Assyrians were enemies of the Hebrew people and had done all sorts of terrible things to them. Jonah's reluctance to go where he has been sent is understandable. His mother may have been abducted and tortured by Ninevites. 
Ninevites may have murdered his grandfather. We don't know. What we do know is that Jonah is so reluctant to go to Nineveh that he travels to Joppa and hops on a ship to Tarshish, a city in the opposite direction from where God told him to go. Now, Jonah is hoping to escape the presence of God, but God is larger than Jonah's plan. God sends a storm to threaten the ship upon which Jonah is sailing. And the sailors try everything to keep the ship upright during the storm, including throwing the precious cargo overboard. But when it becomes clear that they're going to perish, all of them, they cast lots to see whose fault it is that the storm is raging. The lot falls on Jonah, and he readily admits that he is to blame. He tells them, throw me into the sea. Now, these poor sailors really don't want to do this, but it becomes clear that they have no other choice. They pray to Jonah's God, asking not to be guilty of innocent blood. Then they pitch Jonah into the sea, and immediately the sea stops raging. And then the men on the ship are even more afraid. They offer a sacrifice to Jonah's God. Thus Jonah, the reluctant runaway prophet, has already had an impact on the lives of his former shipmates. God isn't finished with Jonah yet, so God sends a great fish to swallow him up. And this is the whale tale you've probably heard about. This, he, he ends, chapter 1 ends with Jonah in the fish's belly, and chapter 2 is a psalm of loyalty and praise that Jonah sings to God from the belly of the fish. And at the end of chapter 2, God has the fish vomit Jonah out onto dry land. Is this because Jonah remained faithful to God even when he thought he would never see dry land again? We don't know. What we do know is that the story picks up in chapter 3. I'm going to be reading chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began going into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. So at the beginning of our reading, God gives Jonah a second chance. There's no talk of punishment or Jonah's previous failure to obey. Jonah isn't grounded like a teenager or ashamed like a petulant child. God simply repeats the command, and this time, Jonah goes. What do you think about second chances? Have you ever been given a second chance? One of the most memorable second chances I received that I'm willing to share about publicly happened my last semester of college. Bill, my husband, and I were engaged, and we were supposed to be married on December 19th after graduating on the 18th. His parents were fully supportive, and my mother was not opposed, but my father and his second wife were dead set against it and assured me I would be cut off from them if I went ahead and married. 
I felt terribly conflicted. I loved Bill, obviously, as he is my husband, lo these many years later, and is sitting here on a cold pew in support this morning. I also loved my father. And after much soul searching, I asked Bill if we could postpone the wedding. Understandably, he was upset and, dare I say, even a bit angry. We hadn't resolved the conflict prior to class, a class we were both taking, Christian ethics of all things. You can't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. We went to class in a tiny basement conference room where all the students sat at one table and the professor handed out the exams we were supposed to take that day. I couldn't put Bill out of my mind. I couldn't focus on the test. I mean, there he was, right across the table. I'm not proud of myself, but my emotions overwhelmed me. I fled from the classroom without writing anything on the paper except my name. I didn't know what would happen. The professor had every right to score my exam as a zero. I don't remember exactly how events unfolded after that. I do know that Bill and I did not break up. We continued our engagement and were married 18 months later. I don't remember taking the exam, but I do remember meeting with the professor afterwards. He was a wizened older gentleman who did not want to know any of the details of why I had fled his classroom. He told me that I'd gotten an A on the test, but that he was docking my grade by a letter since I hadn't taken the test on time. I remember wishing, selfishly, that I could have the A and being incredibly grateful for the second chance he'd given me that allowed me to have a B rather than a zero. Bill didn't get a second chance to take that exam. He stayed in that little conference room and wrote his paper, even though he was worried about me after I ran out. He barely remembers this incident, and he doesn't remember what grade he scored on the test. I believe my grade ended up being a bit higher than his. I suspect that's why I remember this incident so clearly. I got grace that he didn't get. I felt guilty about it. The grace I got cost him something. With more time and peace of mind, he would no doubt have done better on the test. Fortunately for me, he was not sour about it, and the rest of the class never knew the grace the professor had extended to me. Had they known, would they have asked for justice? Jonah takes his second chance all the way to Nineveh, and we're told he proclaims the words that God tells him to proclaim. Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is a rather cryptic message. Jonah doesn't embellish it. Normally, a prophet of Yahweh would identify the God who sent him, especially to Gentiles. Why is Jonah's message so brief? Is he still resentful of his mission? Is he still doing his job grudgingly? We don't know. But what's amazing is the results that Jonah gets. People listen to him, and they don't just listen, they believe God's words and they act. They fast and they put on sackcloth, a scratchy fabric somewhat like burlap, to show their repentance. Let's return to the text and read Jonah 3, verses 6 through 10. 
When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in the ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity he said he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. When word comes to the people, to the king, about his people fasting and wearing sackcloth, he joins them. He even sits in ashes, and he extends the fast and the sackcloth wearing to the animals in a truly over-the-top move. Our reluctant prophet Jonah has converted an entire city. In terms of 21st century evangelism, that's a raging success. If the book ended there, we might think Jonah was pleased with the outcome of his efforts. But it doesn't, and he isn't. Jonah tells God in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, that he is furious. I knew it, I knew it, I knew you were a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I don't know about you, but I find it a little curious that Jonah is outraged that God has decided to have compassion for his enemies, the Ninevites. Now, he himself, quite recently, was the recipient of God's mercy when he was given a second chance rather than left to drown in the ocean. But when his enemies get a second chance... He's furious, full of sour grapes. I pondered Jonah's response during the past week. Why is he so very angry? I thought about Osama bin Laden, the terrorist leader who was behind the 9-11 attacks on the Twin Towers in New York City and the Pentagon. Do you remember how we as a nation reacted when bin Laden was slain? There were if not huge celebrations, at least outpourings, and there was an amount of national pride. We had justice, bin Laden was dead. It didn't bring back the people who died in the towers or resurrect the brave men and women who took down United Airlines Flight 93. But as a nation, we had a sense that justice had been done, didn't we? The Ninevites had done terrible things to Jonah's people and possibly even Jonah's own family. It says so in the text. In Jonah 3, 8, the king says, all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that's in their hands. When God accepts the repentance of the Ninevites, Jonah knows there will be no justice for him and his Hebrew people. That's what we want, isn't it? We want justice. We don't want mercy for our enemies. 
And Jonah's angry because he isn't going to get it. Would we have been enraged as a nation if bin Laden had repented of the evil he had done and received mercy in this lifetime? God responds to Jonah's anger by asking him a question. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer the question. Instead, he travels east. Leaving the city, he finds a spot up high where he builds himself a booth to wait and see what's going to happen. I picture this as a hill or a rise or a cliff where he's up high and he can look down and see what's going on. Is he hoping that the Ninevites will mess up and God will destroy them after all? Is he hoping he's got a front row seat? Is he hoping God will change God's mind again and overthrow the city after all? Jonah walks away from God, but once again, God isn't done with Jonah. God causes a bush to grow up and give Jonah shade. And Jonah's pretty happy about that. Verse 7 tells us, But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. This time, God responds with verses 9 through 11 in chapter 4. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? That's where the book of Jonah ends, with God's question to Jonah. Now, you may be wondering why I like this little book so much, and Thursday night between 11 p.m. and whatever time I finally fell asleep, I was wondering that very same thing. I'd been writing on the manuscript all day, and true confession time, avoiding writing on the manuscript all day. I'd spent far too much time getting up out of my chair, walking the dog, getting a snack, checking my email. I even played a few games of solitaire on my phone. But lying there in the dark, listening to Bill's even breath in sleep, I couldn't avoid the question, why? Why do I like this book? What is it trying to say that is meaningful to us as 21st century Christians? What I came up with is that, first of all, it seems to me the book tells us that God cares about us and gives us second chances. I love the intimacy with which God cares for Jonah. God rescues Jonah from drowning, even though Jonah is running away from God's calling. And when Jonah is enraged and sitting watching the city he has hope will be destroyed, God causes a plant to come up and give him shade. God carefully orchestrates this prophet's life, and he even takes away the shade just to make a point. So if God cares so much for Jonah, doesn't this mean that God cares for us with such intimacy? Doesn't this mean God is with us in the job search that feels never-ending, 
or when we face a dreadful diagnosis. God cares for us when we're grieving a loved one or struggling under a heavy load of work or worry, right? God cares not just for the humans in the book of Jonah, but also for the animals of the city of Nineveh that Jonah wants him to destroy. God is close to us and cares for us and for even animals, this book reminds us. Now, admittedly, God's caring and mercy get tricky when God gives second chances to people we believe are unworthy. In the way Jonah thought the Ninevites were undeserving. Is there someone or some group that we as Christians believe don't deserve God's mercy? If so, should there be? Secondly, this book challenges me to realize the great vastness of God and to humbly accept that my ways, wishes, and desires are not God's ways, wishes, and desires. The book of Jonah reminds us that God is sovereign over the entire world and over realms that our human minds cannot fathom. We are small and at times small-minded, preferring justice to mercy, or at least when it comes to those who've harmed or offended us. Jonah reminds me how very difficult and how very easy it is to be a Christian. We have to let God love and guide us, and we have to let God be God. It is our task to extend the love of God to all. It's God's job and God's alone to dole out judgment. Fortunately for us, God is prone to mercy, even for us when we become judgmental. Let us pray. Thank you for your word, O Lord, for the stories that speak through generations. Please use them to guide our footsteps and keep us on the path that you would have us follow. Amen.